Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We are in 2 Peter, working our way through 2 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 1. This is actually the third message in 2 Peter uh, uh, chapter 1. And one of the things that I mentioned as we kind of started in this, in the book of, of Peter, or the letter of Peter, I should say, is that uh, in 2 Peter, uh, Peter uses the word knowing, some form of knowing, I think it's like 16 or 17 times. It's really important. So there's things that he's trying to communicate. As we discussed uh, last week in verse 14, he knows that his life is drawing near. And, and the Lord Jesus, uh, before he ascended into heaven, told Peter that, you know, basically told him he would be martyred for his faith. And so Peter is now in the situation, he, he really senses that it's drawing near. Um, and so he's conveying to his readers what's on his heart. And, you know, you look at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul, this is his last letter, and he knows that his days are drawing short. And you just sense the emotions in Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter. Well, Peter's letter here, it's not to an individual, but it's to some believers, and he's laying out his heart. And what his heart is, he wants the believers to have a firm understanding about godly things. And one of the things that he wants them to know is about their scriptures, about the good news, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are gonna be looking at verses 16 to 21 this morning. Um, I'm just going to read through it real quick, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it. Verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with them on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, here's this one knowing word, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of men, man, excuse me, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So I title this message, Know Your Scriptures. Um, Peter here says in verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And of course, he's referring to the transfiguration, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But he says, notice he says that we did not follow cunningly devised fables. And there's one thing that you could not accuse the disciples of, and that was being gullible. They were not gullible. They were actually, you know, they were actually kind of slow to believe. Uh, the Lord often rebuked them, you know, you guys are just, you're not getting it, you know. Um, so they were not gullible pushovers. And we see that throughout the gospel. In uh, John chapter 1, Verse 45 and 46, Philip is introducing, he's trying to get Nathaniel to come to see the Messiah. We, we, the Messiah is here. You know, they've been, you know, Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah. And now Philip says, man, this guy's the real deal. And so he gets Nathaniel. And what does Nathaniel say? Oh, yeah, I want to go see him. What does he say? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
I mean, so he, he wasn't a pushover. In fact, he was very skeptical just because, based on where Jesus was born or where he was raised. In Luke's gospel, um, when the women come to the tomb and they find the empty tomb and Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, other women, they run back to the apostles to tell the apostles, the Lord is risen, the tomb is empty. And we're told that to the apostles, it's their words seem like idle tales. Uh, and they didn't believe them. It's like, you guys, it's, you know, they, they just didn't believe them. Again, they're not gullible. They're not pushovers. In Mark's gospel, later on, Jesus appears to two of the disciples. They're on their way down the road to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is walking beside them and says, hey, guys, you got this, you got the really a down look on your face. You know, what, what's, what's up? And, and they say, man, where have you been? Uh, yeah, it's like it's almost like in their idiom, they're basically saying, have you been under a rock? They're like, have you not known what's going on? And, and they start talking about the Messiah and how they had all these high hopes, but now he's dead. And so Jesus is walking along and he spends time just going through the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Jesus is giving a Bible study based on the Old Testament, all the prophecies about them. Well, he finally, you know, they, they, they go to, they, they beg him basically to, to stay with them. They, they prepare a meal of wherever they're staying at. And as Jesus prays and blesses the meal, all of a sudden their eyes are open and they see that it's Jesus, the Messiah. And so they run back to the disciples and we're told in Mark 16, they didn't believe them either. Here's two people that we've seen the Lord. No, they, they don't believe him. Later on, Jesus appears to the 12 disciples, uh, 11 of the disciples anyways. Thomas isn't there. And there he is. He just appears in the room with them where they're, where they're staying. And they see him. They see the nail prints in his hands. And so then they tell Thomas, Thomas, man, you should have been here. Jesus is alive. And what does Thomas say? Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So what Paul is saying, or what Peter is saying, man, we didn't follow cunningly, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. We weren't pushovers. We weren't gullible. Uh, he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And again, he is talking about the transfiguration. But backing up from the transfiguration, John says this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that the eternal life was with the Father and was manifested to us. The disciples had three and a half years of walking around with Jesus, eating with Jesus, sleeping in the same room or the same place with Jesus, living with Jesus on a daily basis, 24-7. Now, when I come to church here, you know, you might, well, you might see me during the week off and on, or Lord willing, you definitely see me on Sunday mornings, and, you know, you kind of get an idea, and of course, I try to be the, the most polite, and I have my best face on, you know, on Sundays and when you see me, but, you know, if you were to live with me 24-7, you go, okay, okay. You know, you, you get to know a person by being with them. Well, the disciples spent three and a half years with Jesus. They knew that he was the Messiah. In fact, in uh, John chapter 6, verse 69, Peter says this to Jesus. 
He says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, it's just everything he did, it was just, okay, he's the Messiah. Well, after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, the disciples had 40 days to observe the risen Christ. In fact, when he appeared to the apostles in Luke 24, uh, verse 38, he said this, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that is, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, you guys got any food? <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Because he probably knew what they were thinking. It's an apparition. It's a ghost. And Jesus said, hey, I'm hungry, man. You got something? And he ate in front of them because a spirit doesn't eat, right? A spirit, you know, flesh and bones. Later on, and Paul records this in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, he talks about all these different peoples. He mentions the men on the road to Emmaus, how they saw the Lord. Uh, he mentions all these different people. And then at one point in verse 6 of chapter 15, he says that after that, and he's speaking of Jesus, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. It's interesting that Paul mentions that. What he's basically saying is, hey, there's of the 500, there's a bunch of these people that are still alive, and you can go and talk to them, and, and you can ask them, am I making this up, or did they actually see the Lord Jesus Christ? So the disciples weren't pushovers, but they became believers as they saw the resurrection of Jesus, they saw Jesus resurrected. Now, one of the things that I want to point out about Scripture is that accuracy is important. I mean, it's important for you and I, right? We want to know that the Bible that we're reading is the same word that was spoken. You know, did, did somebody just make this up, or you know, did things get lost? I mean, it's been two thousand years. Maybe things, are, maybe it's not as accurate as as we think it is, or we hope it is. Accuracy is important to you and I today. But can you imagine to the first century, the, the early church, how much more important it was to them? And the reason why I say that is because they were being martyred for believing in Jesus Christ. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs of all these people, all the Christians, and how they were brutally murdered, how they were brutally murdered for their faith in Christ. So they wanted to know, man, is this really true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? How do you know that these things happen? Accuracy was very important to them. And so Paul says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. And you could just substitute the word myths. We didn't follow myths. I mean, we didn't just make this up. And you know what Peter does? And I love what he does there in Acts. He appeals to the knowledge of, their, of the people that are there based on what they know. When he's speaking about Jesus Christ there on Pentecost. You got to think about it. At Pentecost, these people, they hear this rushing wind. They're wondering what's going on. They come and they see the disciples that were gathered in that upper room. They're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. They're, I mean, it's, it's an amazing event. And they're like, what is going on? And some of the mockers are saying, well, these guys are just drunk, you know. And, and Peter gives that message that it's amazing what he says. Well, one of the things that Peter did in that message, and, and, I, and I love it, in verse, I'll just read it to you in Acts 2, verse 22. 
He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. What did Peter do? He said, hey guys, you were there. You saw the miracles Jesus did. You heard his teachings. You've seen, you've experienced, you know because they couldn't deny that what they had seen. So Paul, Paul, Peter's like, you know, we didn't just come up with a myth. You guys saw Jesus. You experienced, you were probably some of the people that were fed on the, on the hillside there by the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in John chapter 11, the chief priests and the scribes, they gathered together in verse 47 and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? They can't deny the miracles. In fact, in John chapter 12, we're going through John in, in, uh, on Wednesday nights, and we just got done talking about this a, a week or two weeks ago, I guess. But in John chapter 12, uh, you know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And you guys know that story. Well, it's funny because in verse 10 of chapter 12, it says, but the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Here's this man that they knew was dead and now he's alive. And so the, what do the Pharisees do? Well, we're going to kill him again. <laughs> we're going to kill him. So, you know, we'll silence his witness. They couldn't deny the fact that he had risen, that, that, that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. They couldn't deny the, the, the miracles that Peter is talking about. And so just think about this. If Peter had been just making this up, you know, they, they, the, the disciples, really smart guys, you know, they, they got together and they said, hey, let's come up with this, this religion and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll just say that this and this stuff happened. They had hostile witnesses there in Jerusalem. And, and so if Peter had just been making it up, if they're like, what are you talking about? We don't know what you're talking about. At the very least, they would have discredited him. The very worst, they probably would have attacked him. But what happens when Peter gives that message, thousands come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because they couldn't deny what they saw. So accuracy is important. Well, Scripture is a revelation. It's what you would call, I would call a revealing. And what Paul said, or excuse me, I keep saying Paul, but what Peter says there in verse um, 16, he basically says that Scripture reveals the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the aspects of the scriptures. Know your scriptures. It reveals the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see it over and over again. He had power over the elements, right? He could speak to the storm and the storm was stilled. Uh, he, could, he could provide, uh, you know, wine out, out of water, basically. He could change water into wine. He could feed thousands of people with just a few fish. Uh, he had power over the elements. He cast out demons. He had power over the spiritual world, over the demons. He had the power to heal. Most importantly, I think, because, I mean, those things are all important, but more importantly, he had the power to forgive sins. He has the power to forgive sins. He has power over death and hell. In fact, in Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. His power over death. In fact, 
He has power over all. In fact, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority, all power. In fact, in Hebrews 1, 3, we're told that everything is upheld by the word of his power. So scriptures reveals the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture also reveals the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His first coming was prophesied in the Old Testament. David prophesied about him. In Psalm 22, verse 16, David prophesied that the Christ, the Messiah, would be crucified by having his hands and his feet pierced. You can read that in Psalm 22. Isaiah prophesied about the Christ, about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that he would, in Isaiah 7, 14, that he'd be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, that Christ would not need to defend, or that, excuse me, Christ would not defend himself before his accusers. He'd be just sitting there silent. In verse 9 of chapter 53, that Christ would die among the wicked people, but he'd be buried in a rich man's grave. We know that, you know, we know that that happened. Micah prophesied of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He pro prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Zechariah prophesied that Christ, uh, in 9.9, Zechariah 9.9, that Christ would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. In Zechariah 11.12, that Christ would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 11, verse 13, those 30 pieces of silver used to betray Christ would be thrown in the temple and be used to buy the potter's field. Those were, that, that, that's just, I, I just, those are eight prophecies that, that scriptures prophesied the coming, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are, all, what are the odds that all of those eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one person? And maybe you guys have heard this before. There's a guy by the name of Professor Peter Stoner who lived a while ago, um, but he wrote a book and he calculated the odds and he said the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person, the odds are one in 10 to the 17th power. And so he gave a picture in his book he said, basically, if you were to take the entire state of Texas and you were to take silver dollars and you were to fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars and you take one silver dollar and you put a little red check mark on it and then you blindfold a guy, have him walk into the state and the first silver dollar that he picks up would be that silver dollar. He says that's the odds. That's the odds that uh, the odds are one in ten Odds are 1 in 10 to the 17th that the first silver dollar that he picked up would have that red mark. That, that kind of gives you an idea of the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. Well, we know from scriptures that Christ not only fulfilled eight prophecies, he didn't fulfill just 18 prophecies or 80 prophecies or 180. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament in one person in Jesus Christ. So his first coming was prophesied accurately and literally. But we also know scriptures prophesies his second coming, which hasn't happened yet, obviously. But let me just say this. If the prophecies of his first coming were fulfilled so accurately and so literally, I mean, you know, you don't have to be like go through mental gymnastics to go, well, you know, uh, Christ was born of a virgin, but, you know, it wasn't really a virgin. But, you know, it, the person kind of considered themselves. No, they were. Mary was a virgin. OK, I mean, it was literal and it was accurate. 
And, and, and so I look at all these Old Testament prophecies of his first coming, and they're literally and accurately fulfilled. Well, what makes me think that now the prophecies of his second coming are going to be symbolic? You know, there's prophecies about Christ reigning for, on the earth for a thousand years. We call that the millennial reign of Christ. And there's a lot of people say, well, that's just symbolic. Or the return, of his, uh, return for his bride, the church. You know, I've been told that that's a pipe dream for escapists. You know, he's not literally going to do that. And so we look at the Old Testament, at the old at his first coming, man, they are accurately fulfilled. I believe the second, his second coming is going to be just as accurate as, as we read in scriptures. So the scriptures reveals the coming of Christ. Continuing on here in verse 17, Peter says this, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, that's referring to the transfiguration. You know what's interesting about this? It's recorded in three Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. None of them were eyewitnesses. They were what I would call ear witnesses. They heard it firsthand from the apostles that were there. And notice that uh, Peter says we were there. What he's speaking about is Peter, James, and John. They were the three eyewitnesses to Christ's transfiguration. And so what Peter is basically saying is, hey, we were there. We saw, we heard. What was the purpose for the transfiguration of Jesus Christ anyways? What did it accomplish? Why did it take place? Well, it's interesting if you were to go to each one of those gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you just read where you find in scriptures where those chapters are. If you just look about a verse or two ahead of that, in each one of those accounts, Jesus tells his disciples something, and I'm going to read a couple of them to you. Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The next thing you read is the transfiguration of Christ. Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And then if you also looked at Luke, we won't read that one, but it's almost the same word for word as what I just read to you. What took place shortly after that, those verses that I read? If you look in the Gospels, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with them on a mountain to pray. And let me read Luke chapter 9, verse 29 to you. It says, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. And his robe became white and glistening, and behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. One outcome of the transfiguration, I believe, is that Peter, James, and John saw Christ in his glory, in what, what he will be in his glorified state in heaven, uh, his glory, his kingdom, and power. That, they're the witnesses of that. They got a foretaste of that. Another outcome of the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John heard for themselves the Father confirming the glory and majesty of the Son. There, there's three times in scriptures where the Father speaks 
and people hear it. Some people don't hear it. Some people think it's lightning. Some people think, you know, what, what was that sound, you know? But there's three times when the Father speaks about Christ. First time is at his baptism. Second time is here at his transfiguration. And then the final week when Jesus is in Jerusalem in John chapter 12, verse 28, there's another time when he speaks three times. When the father spoke to Peter or spoke there on the mountain of transfiguration, that confirmed to Peter what he had already said. If you recall back in Matthew 16, 16, you know, Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, he said that. In fact, Jesus just, Jesus tells him, hey, you didn't come up with this on your own. It wasn't, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven revealed that to you. And so Peter, or Peter is saying it, I believe, by faith. But here at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father is confirming what Peter had already said. It's interesting, you know, if you read the account of the Transfiguration, the, the, the Peter, I can I can identify with Peter because you know he's he starts falling asleep when he shouldn't be. You know, um, I I remember in, being in serious conversations with people and their voices are so nice and pleasant that I just start going. You know, I just start you know I'm like trying to stay awake while they maybe got narcolepsy. I don't know what. Um, <laughs> Peter falls asleep at the most inopportune time. There is on the mountain, maybe it was, you know, maybe they're out of breath, you know, climbing a mountain and uh, Peter sits down and it's like, you know, they had a long day ministering with the Lord, whatever. They're starting to fall asleep and you guys know the story and, and, and then all of a sudden he wakes up and there's Moses and Elijah and Jesus is glorified and, and uh, Peter doesn't know what to say and I can identify with that. So he says something because they don't know what to say. So he just says, hey, let's, let's put up three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the father rebukes Peter, right? I mean, that, that's what happened. It's basically a rebuke to Peter. This is my beloved son, hear him. In other words, Peter, you're trying to put Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus Christ, and he's not. Um, so this account that Peter is referring to, it actually wasn't a rebuke for Peter. But now, these many years later, he's looking back on it. And it's, it was a rebuke, but what was once a rebuke is now a comfort to Peter. It's, in, it's something that, that bolstered his faith, and now he's sharing it with those around him. Another probable outcome of the transfiguration, and I'll say probable because I, I, I'll just say it's probable, um, was that the father, I think, used this to strengthen the son for Jesus Christ for what was you know, shortly to happen ahead. We know that Jesus was fully God. We also know that Jesus was fully man. And Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And so I think one of the, one of the reasons for the transfiguration was to encourage Christ himself. Because he was a man. You know, he, 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 he was tempted like you and I were tempted. He got tired like you and I get tired. He probably got frustrated when you and I get, just like you and I get frustrated. He dealt with all those emotions and all those things that you and I deal with. And so I think there the Father gave him a glimpse. You know, one thing, whenever I read the trans, about the transfiguration, I always think back about Moses. Because there Moses is there appearing there. And, and why I always think about that is because I remember back in Exodus, 
Remember when Moses misrepresented God the Father? What did God say? God said, you're not going into the promised land. You can go up, on, I'll take you up onto this mountain, you can look at it, but you're not stepping foot in it. What happens here? He's stepping foot in the promised land. You know what that speaks to me is God's grace. God is so gracious. I, I, I love that, you know. Well, Moses and Elijah, a lot of people think that Moses and Elijah are also going to be the two witnesses that are going to come back to Jerusalem uh, physically in the flesh and, and actually be preaching there. It's in the book of Revelation. So it's very possible that they are the two. But I always think about that when I think about Moses. I'm like, God, you're so good. He didn't deserve it. You said he couldn't do it. And now you're letting him do it. And God treats me that way, too. I don't deserve the blessings that God, I mean, pours out in my life. Well, Peter knows that his time to die is soon. And so he's reflecting back on this transfiguration experience that he had on the mountain when Moses and Elijah were talking with the Lord about his soon, and Luke calls it his decease or his exodus. Mo, or Peter's being reflective. One of the things I've, I find myself, catch myself, is I get a lot more reflective lately. And I walk, we've got, we've got kind of like our family hall of fame, you know, and our pictures of the kids and grandkids is in our hallway. And there's a lot of times I walk by there and I just stop and I reflect on those experiences that are pictured in the, in the pictures. I didn't do that when I was younger, you know, but now I seem like, it seems like the older I get, the more reflective I get. And probably because most of the stuff's in my rear view, you know, I'm not <laughs> looking forward as much anymore. Um, there's a lot more past experiences, but I, I get reflective, and, and, and I think reflection comes the older you get. Well, I think Peter here is reflecting on that experience. Can you put yourself in Peter's shoes? Would you have liked to have been there on the Mount of Transfiguration to see Christ in his glory, to see Moses and Elijah, to, to have a, just have a taste of, on earth, have a mountaintop experience. We always talk about the mountaintop experience. As great as those experiences are, you know what sustains you and I? It's not the experiences. It's the word of God. That's what sustains us. The sure word of prophecy. Look at verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. You know, experiences are great, but they're subjective. Um, God's word is objective. Experiences are great, but you know what? They fade. And I think some of my experiences that I reflect on, they're not quite as accurate. You know, the fish that I almost caught, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger every time I reflect on it. Um, our experiences fade and they distort over time, but God's word remains the same for and it abides forever. In fact, Jesus said, Mark 13, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Scripture is confirmed by eyewitnesses, the apostles. Scripture is confirmed by the Father himself and by the fulfillment of prophecies. I want to read to you out of Isaiah chapter 44. Verses 24 to 28. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, 
I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the sign of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. I love that. I love that prophecy because Isaiah gave it. He was a prophet to Judah. This prophecy he gave was even before the Babylonian captivity. So the temple's still standing, Judah's still standing, Jerusalem's still standing, and he's and it's like Babylon who? <laughs> you know? They don't even know who Babylon the, I mean they were a small nation at that time. And here Isaiah is prophesying before the Babylonian captivity, before the temple was destroyed by the prophets by the Babylonians, and here he's prophesying that a man named Cyrus is gonna give a command to rebuild Jerusalem and lay found the foundation of the temple, even before they were destroyed. And he's named by name in scriptures 220 years after this prophecy, King Cyrus of Persia gives the command for the Jews to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. That is just one example out of many examples of the prophetic word confirmed. I mean, you guys, we have a treasure in God's word here. The Lord God said this in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So, you know, I, I, I read, I hear, you know, reread articles about the Iranians saying, you know, we're going to wipe Jerusalem, we're going to wipe the Zionists off the, off the face of, of, the, of the land, you know. It's like, yeah, right, it ain't going to happen. Because <laughs> I know what God's word says. It ain't going to happen. Um, you know, I, I look at the things that are going on right now, and yeah, I get a little concerned, and I can get really riled up. I have to kind of stay away from certain news sites because I can get really riled up. Um, but you know what? God's in control. So I, I, I really don't need to worry. We don't need to worry. We don't need to get all worked up. God's in control. And so Peter says we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now, when you think of the prophetic word, and I've definitely brought up some prophecies here, don't we normally think of prophecy in the sense of foretelling future events? You know, if you prophesy something, it's, it's, it's about something that hasn't happened. In fact, scriptures tells us that one of the tests of a true prophet from the Lord is if what they prophesy happens, if it literally happens. If it doesn't, it's like they're a false prophet. Um, that's one of the tests. Everything that the prophets of the Lord have prophesied that have been fulfilled, some of them haven't been fulfilled, but those that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally and accurately. Again, you don't need to do mental gymnastics to make them fit into history. They, they've happened. It's amazing. Um, some of the people, you know, it's uh, uh, Daniel. You know, Daniel gives this accounts of these different kings and stuff in these different kingdoms. And, and it's amazing when you read that and you, and you, you set a history book beside it, how it, it just, it's 
it's it's history basically. There's people thinking like Daniel must have been written by someone that lived afterwards because I mean it's so accurate. How can it be this accurate? It's because God gave it to Daniel. So everything that the prophets have been fulfilled that they that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. But I want to read this to you out of Daniel chapter nine verse ten. Daniel is praying to the Lord, and he's confessing sin to the Lord um, there in Babylon. And he says this, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. You see, the prophets not only prophesied of the coming of the Messiah, they didn't, necessarily prof they didn't only prophesy of the destruction of Jerusalem and things like that. They were spokespersons for the Lord God. They spoke, God sent prophets to turn the hearts of the Jewish people back to him. Prophesying is not only foretelling future, future events, but it is forthtelling. Forthtelling. In other words, the Lord is speaking through his people. The gift of prophecy today in the church. Now, there are people that prophesy future events, and, and that, that is a part of prophecy, the gift of prophecy. But the gift of prophecy is also speaking forth God's words to his people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2 and 3, Paul says this. He says, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. If you're, if you're speaking in tongues, you're praying in tongues, you're, it's between you and God. But if you're speaking in prophecy, he says, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. It's God speaking through the prophet to his church. And because the prophetic word is given by God, scripture provides vision in darkness. Look at the, uh, verse 19 again which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Man, I've been amazed at the technological advances that have been occurring. You know, it's just, it's, when you look back at how many things, it's just amazed the inventions and the things that have happened, you know, electronics, I mean, I, you know, the computer, where we're at from, from where we were when uh, the first, you know, desktop computer was created until where we are today. It's amazing, the technological advances. But one thing to remember is technological advances don't equal moral advances. And we see that in our culture. We may know more intellectually, scientifically, and medically, but it has not resulted in greater morals. I mean, you think about what we know now about uh, the life of a, of a, of a newborn, a preborn infant, a, a baby in the womb. We know so much more now about the conception, about when life begins. We know so much more about, you know, the babies, they can, they can feel pain. I mean, there's all these things that we know. And you'd think, well, with all that advance, we'd, be, we'd also be advanced morally. But look, now we're at a point where people say, hey, you can abort the baby, you know, you can kill the baby after it's, after it's even born. So advanced technological and intellectual and everything does not equal greater morals. And the world is getting spiritually darker. I know people say, well, you know, it's always been. No, it's getting worse. It's definitely getting worse. But while the world is getting spiritually darker, God's word is shining brighter. It is. You know, it, it guides you and I with clarity in a sea of ambiguity. 
hope I pronounced that right, ambiguity. I just read an article, you probably have too, the American Medical Association, they are advising that pediatricians, you know, when a baby's born, they, they say you shouldn't put their, the child's uh, sex on the, on the birth certificate because, you know, what if they want to change their mind? You know, you're just creating problems if they decide later on, you know, that they're, they don't want to be a male or they don't want to be a female or whatever. I, I mean, it's, it's amazing when you think about that. It's, it's like, you know, you look at a baby and you go, okay, that's a male. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like... I, there's a male, you could tell, you know. But now I can't say that's a male because what if they don't feel like they're a male later on or they don't want to be a male later on? I know this is getting, this might be touchy with some people, but there's a lot of ambiguity out there and it's going to get worse. You can't say things to certain people. You can't, you can't think this way. There's just so much, it's, just, it's, it's a sea of ambiguity out there. But God's word provides the clarity for you and I in that sea of ambiguity. Because the prophetic word is given by God, we do well to heed scripture. Matthew Henry said this based on that verse. When he says heeding scripture, what, is it, what does it mean? It means to apply our minds to understand the sense and our hearts to believe the truth of this sure word. Yea, to bend ourselves to it that we may be molded and fashioned by it. Now, he lived a long time ago, Matthew Henry. But what he said there, in, in essence, to me sounds like the way you and I should be reading the word of God, the, in, it, how we inductively Bible, read the Bible. Um, you guys maybe know the inductive Bible study method, but uh, it's really the way you and I should look at Scripture anytime. And that's, first of all, with observation, right? You read the Scripture, you read who it was written, who wrote it, who it was written to, what, what's being written, where is it written, when is it written. I mean, all those things come into play to get the context of Scripture. Because so many times people take a scripture and they take it out of context. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're making something out of that, but that's not the context of which it was given. So we've got to be careful there. So we want, to, we want to observe it and get the right context. Then we want to interpret it. Well, what does it mean? What is God trying to say? Well, what's the truth in here? And then finally, you know, you can get to that point and you go, it's great to have a knowledge or a good understanding of a passage of scripture, but the next step is the most important. What do you do with it? How do you apply it? Because the Bible says we just deceive ourselves if we just, you know, yeah, that's a good scripture. How do you, what do you do with it? What do you do in response? And so he says, you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is the morning star? Or I should say, who is the morning star? Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So what is Peter saying here? Well, this is what I think Peter is saying here. Scripture is God's living word to you. Do you treat it as such? In other words, is Christ risen in your heart? You know, you think of the disciples. Before they saw the resurrected Christ, I mean, they were, they, they, you know, they cowered in a room and they, you know, they, they were confused and they were fearful and they were doubting and everything until they saw the risen Christ. And man, their lives were changed. Well, for you and I, Today And I know, I'm assuming the majority of people here and those listening, I'm assuming, are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. But listen, is Christ alive in your heart this morning? 
Are you, are you, are you, do you have that, just that constant awareness that Christ is alive right now? Is he risen in your hearts? Because if he's risen in your hearts, then the word of God is going to have a greater impact on you. The disciples changed when they saw the resurrected Christ and the same holds true to us today. So I think that's what Peter is saying here. And then in verse 20, he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here's a couple things I want to want to just get to you in closing. And, and first of all is this scripture is not mysterious. It's not mysterious. You know, if someone comes up to you today and says, hey, I've got this new revelation of scripture. Um, I, I've had a couple, at least a couple people that I can, I can, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I'm not here, but I've had people that have come up to me and say, hey, I've got this new understanding of scripture that the church has missed for 2,000 years. It's a new, it's a new, under, man, the Holy Spirit revealed it to me and the, the church has missed it. You know what I say? Danger, danger, you know, way of, danger, Will Robinson. I get a red flag when someone says that. Why? Because we are not more spiritual in this generation than other believers were before us. You know, the saints before that they studied the scriptures, they were led by the spirit, the Lord's, the spirit's, he, he's the same today as he was a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, 2000 years ago. And so I think it's really arrogant for people today to say, well, we've got this knowledge that the whole church missed. I, I, scripture is not mysterious. That word, when he says it's of, it's not of private interpretation, verse 20. This is what that literally means. It means as belonging to oneself and not to another, one's own peculiar. And, and this is what I think Peter is also saying. One scripture doesn't stand out in opposition to the rest of scripture because scripture interprets scripture. That's why you read the whole counsel of God. You know, we work our way here at Calvary Chapel. I, I've, I have taught through the entire Bible here. If you've been here the, from the get-go, uh, my wife has. She hasn't had a choice. She's had to been here. So she's begun through the entire Bible with me. Um, but I do that. I, I go through the entire Bible. And because the whole counsel of God, in fact, uh, Paul says all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture interprets scripture. You can take any scripture in the Bible and you can isolate it. You can take it out of context. You can isolate it by itself. And you can basically come up with any kind of weird doctrine that you want to. There, it's, it's, you can do it. And people do do it. But what you have to do is you have to take scripture. It doesn't stand alone. You have to take it and compare it with other scripture because scripture interprets scripture. The next thing is that scripture is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It mean, literally means God breathed. He spoke through men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just going to say this, and hopefully you won't know this true, but the Holy Spirit's not inspiring men now today to write new scriptures you know he's not doing that anymore the testimony of the word of god is complete there is no new revelation of jesus christ so if someone shows up at your door and says hey we have another revelation of jesus christ uh-uh it's complete so the holy spirit is not doing that 
But what I want to bring out in this closing here is because men, it says there, uh, verse 21, uh, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men. What does that mean? They, they were just really super holy. No, they were set apart. They had set their, parts, their lives apart for God. They were holy men um, who were moved, who, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Here's a person, whoever, whichever gospel writer or, or one of the prophets of the Old Testament, you know, here they are. They're, they're set apart for God. They're living their lives for God. And the Holy Spirit leads them to write scripture. And today we have scripture that provides clarity in a sea of ambiguity. All this junk that's going on today, God's word is still, it's still relevant. It's still, it's, it's the truth. It's the light that we need in this darkness around us. And, but I think about that. I think about that for you and I. Now, if you come up to me after the service and say, the, the Holy Spirit's inspired me to write another gospel, I'm going to say, you know what? That's, don't do it. Um, but I think about this. Isaiah 48, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. And so I just think about these men that were led by the Spirit. They submitted their lives to the Spirit, and the Spirit led them to write the Scriptures. What an amazing thing, how they were used, that's even impacting us today. Well, again, the Holy Spirit's the same yesterday as he is today. And he wants to do a work through each one of us too. An amazing work, an impacting work, if we'll submit our lives to him. Now again, he's not gonna have you, he's not gonna inspire you to write scripture. He might inspire you to write a song or maybe to write a book or something, but not scripture. But he wants to do a work in each one of us, an amazing work, just like he did through these writers of the gospels and the, and the Bible. So I just wanna close with that is that, um, in fact, let's pray. Let's, let's close in prayer about that.